be walking uh, with us as well, some of the staff, and um, we'd love for you to be a part of it. Uh, 10 a.m. Convention Center. If you have questions, we always meet in the far back right corner, and uh, you'll see us there, and we can uh, march together. All right? Uh, so here's a quote that I find uh, inspiring. Part of why I find it inspiring, because it speaks to who I think we are as a community. It says this, In a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All men and women are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And this is a powerful statement. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. And I believe that to be true, not just as a nation, not just as races, but I also believe that it's true of us as the body of Christ. There is a strong statement throughout Scripture that unless we are one, right, unless we are unified in really beautiful ways, it's hard for the world around to know that we're followers of Jesus, right? And so I'd encourage you, uh, think on, on that uh, today. Think on this idea that true community is found when I am who I am supposed to be because you are who you are supposed to be and that we are all interrelated. I want to uh, shift gears now and um, talk about what we are going to be talking about this morning related to our passage and related to the series. Uh, Kevin last week told you that occasionally we will title, or most days we title our sermons. The title of mine this morning is Yellow and Blue Make Green and Other Thoughts About God. And so, I want to talk about that this morning. And uh, I want to start out with a passage from the message version of the scriptures. It's in 1 John. And I think it uh, reflects a little bit about this idea of Jesus and what we're hoping for for this particular series. It says this, The infinite life of God Himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing, or in this case our motive for speaking, is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. In many ways, that's why I feel like we've decided to move into this series on what does it mean for Jesus to come? What is the significance of the way He lived? What does that call us to do as people that follow Him? And so this whole series for quite a while into the future here, we're going to be looking at Jesus. And uh, this, this struck me this week that we have, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've talked about it, we've allowed Him to influence us in a way, and it's our hope that together as we talk about this in groups and uh, in accountability uh, times together and just when we're enjoying one another and then here on Sundays that we are able to, as the last little phrase says, we want to enjoy this. We want to enjoy who he is and we want to know him more. Last week, Kevin spoke on uh, the significance of the incarnation. Why would Jesus choose to do that as a means of uh, reconciling us to God and talked about um, the significance of it. Really, the importance of saying Jesus came and His coming was all about reconciliation. It was all about restoring relationship between God and us. Uh, it was as if He was seeking to get us back to the garden again where He could walk with us in the cool of the day, right? It's that idea. That God knows that there's a brokenness and so the way... To, uh, to change all of that was through the Incarnation, and so Christ came. Kevin emphasized the idea that change had to come from within, and he talked about that great Christian movie, Independence Day, and the importance of, <laughs> of, uh, of what it signified for us. And so this morning, <clears throat> what we want to do is look at another, I think, very significant element of what it means for Christ to dwell among us. And so let me pray as we uh, get started on this. Father, <clears throat> we know that we, in many ways, cannot even begin to comprehend uh, the fact that you came uh, 
Jesus, and that you lived among us, that you dwelt among us, that you embodied in perfect essence who you were and then what perfect humanity would look like and that you then allowed yourself to be wrongly accused You allowed yourself to be beaten and abused, and then you allowed your life to be given for us. And that thought alone blows our minds. We're thankful for your gift. We're thankful for the sacrifice, and we are eager this morning to have you speak to us. I pray that you would remove distractions, clear our minds, keep us fresh and alert and open to hearing what you have to say. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> to get where we're headed this morning, to get at uh, yellow plus blue equals green and other thoughts on God, what I want to do is start uh, in a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to put it up on the screen. But this uh, particular verse is probably one of the most uh, beautiful and dazzling portraits of Jesus' life. A moment in time that this is capturing that I think is quite significant. The text says this, Daniel speaking, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is a picture of the coronation of Jesus. Right? One of the most joyful and most triumphant moments in history. This is one of those moments that we would say is second only to the resurrection for us. That you have Christ coming back to life, breaking all bondage, And then now, the second greatest moment we could imagine is him establishing his kingdom, being crowned king, being the beneficiary of an everlasting kingdom, and welcoming us into that kingdom. That is the picture. And so you hear that, and you go, man, that's pretty amazing. It's really exciting. I can't wait for that moment. But what's interesting is how Jesus got to that moment. The route that he took is probably less than conventional, right? The scriptures tell us this, that Jesus chose to empty himself. To get to that picture, he chose to empty himself. Kenosis is the technical term for it, a self-emptying. And the, the scriptures describe it this way. In 1 John it says that the word God became flesh and dwelt among us. In Hebrews, it says that since the children, we have flesh and blood, He too shared in our humanity, that He took on flesh and blood. In Philippians 2, again in the message version, it says this, when the time came, He set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, He stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. See, all the teachings say that Jesus humbled himself or he emptied himself. Now, I would argue that humility hardly begins to describe the Incarnation, right? It hardly begins to touch at it. The eternal Son of God, light of all lights, King of all kings, very God of very God, chose to become human, to be in utero for quite a few months, to pass through the birth canal, to be laid in a manger, to have to learn how to walk, fall over himself, to trip, to stumble, to bruise his knee. He had to learn how to talk, misspelling words and starting to figure out language. And As we say to our kids, he even had to learn how to go poopy in the potty at some point, right? 
Like all of that was a part of the process. Part of his introduction to humanity. And if you think about it, it is quite opposite of the picture that we just presented in the book of Daniel. You have the God-crowned kingdom reigning forever, and you have humanity. And you have these two things contrasting each other at the exact same time as polar opposites of who Jesus is. Okay? Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold that thought, kind of put it off to the side, Consider it background information that's helpful for us, and then we're going to move forward, okay? And I want you to shift your attention to a little video. And the video is uh, going to set up the rest of the yellow plus blue makes green part of the talk, okay? So this is a little video, and uh, the video is about relationships and how, in this particular person's mind, how relationships can last, okay? So take a look. The key to a long relationship... This is you, you, and this is, and this is your partner, and that could mean wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, however you identify. This green dot here is the relationship. Now, the key to a long marriage is to maintain your sense of you, and for your partner to maintain their sense of being, and then together, you share a relationship. You stay you, he or she stays who they are, and together you share this. The problem with most relationships is that somebody in the relationship, or both people, think the only way to succeed is like this, is to give up you, is to give up you, and instead have this thing together where you give up your sense of identity and you just have this. It's like, that's it. There's no more you, there's no more me, there's just the relationship, and that will never work. This alone is the key. Okay. Quick little video. Uh, this guy is uh, get waxing eloquently about the theory of relationship. He's talking about how relationships work. Um, and it, at, at first glance, I would say that it sounds pretty good. I, I think in many ways, it's a really practical way in which our culture speaks to the idea of relationship. Now, you have you, you have your partner, whoever that partner is, and you have a thing that kind of holds you together. That's the relationship. And as long as those things all fit the way they're supposed to fit, it's a very good visual to describe, I think, where our culture is at. But here's how I think it relates to the Incarnation. Here's how it relates to God becoming man. When we think about God, I think a lot of times what we do, when we think about this union of God, okay, and then you have this humanity, okay, uh, body, however you want to describe it, flesh, that he took on flesh. And you have these two things, and then together, as he described, now you have Jesus, right? That's how a lot of us, at least in our mind, begin to imagine what it might be for Jesus, God, to become man, right? It's something like the way this guy just described, relationship. And so, you have this unique thing that fits in the middle between God and between man and we have really no idea metaphysically what this looks like or how this plays out. And, um, but I would argue that that's probably not a true picture of what this looks like for God to become man. I would argue it's more like this, that you have God, you have man, and now you have together Jesus. Okay, 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man, somehow, uniquely, this all comes together. And the reason why I think this is important is because Jesus, or God, it is said that he emptied himself, right? That he set aside part of what made him uniquely him, part of what made him God, was moved to a place that enabled this union with flesh, so that he could be 100% flesh and 100% God. So that he could be the kind of person that could do miracles and at the same time get tired. The kind of person that would fall asleep in a boat because he's worn out, then wake up and like calm all the storms. Right? The kind of person that's like hungry and tells people he's hungry, and then a little boy comes 
with fish and loaves, and then now there's thousands of fish and loaves, right? Somehow, God in a unique way became not just God and not just man, but this unique God-man that we find to be Jesus. And I think this is really, really important. Let me give you another illustration that I think will lead us to where I'm hoping to go this morning. It's a little bit like marriage, okay? Yesterday, I had the privilege of uh, doing a wedding over at Gonzaga Chapel and the reception here. You can tell by the lights. We had a uh, a great time, and uh, Spencer and Allison were married. And what I say to most couples during the marriage, during ceremony, at some point I will talk about the idea that two become one, right? That there was you. Two, collectively, individuals, and that the scriptures teach that two of you, now entering into marriage, become one. And that's found in Mark. You can see it up here on the screen. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, here's what I think we want this passage to mean. I think what we want the passage to mean is that you have man, one person. You have woman, one person, right? And then you have marriage, right in the middle. Just like you described on the video. We want it to mean that, I'm convinced. In our culture right now, that's the the hope. Is that you come into it, the other person comes into it, and in the center, you have this thing that is your relationship, that is your marriage, that allows your relationship to thrive. And in many ways, I think that's the way we, as a society, describe it. And I think the reason we describe it that way is because it's just easier that way. Okay, I would argue that it's easier that way. What I mean by that is, if, uh, if this thing goes away... You still have 100% you and 100% the other person, right? You're your own unique individuals. There's no need for the two to become one. You just come to the point where it works for both of you in a really beautiful way. And I would argue that that's where we probably head as a society. I would even say that this is why we would argue, then why get married? Like, why make this thing official? Just make it with a lot of dotted lines. Right? Because then it only kind of complicates things later. So, just act as if we're married. Just essentially be married. Live together. Decide to live life together. But, but not really have to have two become one. Let's just keep it kind of where it's at. And then here's where I think it goes from there. That if, uh, if you then add little other circles, they're called kids, in case you're wondering. You add little other circles to this thing, right? And somehow they fit into a dynamic that's called family, right? But if this part goes away, and this part goes away, it's still okay, because now you have all a bunch of independent circles. And it works really well in an independent society to have independent circles. Now, some of you are going... Well, that's hogwash because we know that that doesn't really work well that way. True. We know it doesn't. But I think this is what we tend to do. We describe it this way. We describe a relationship that way, just like in the video. We describe marriage that way. And really, I think it's a little bit different than that. So here's a little bit of why I think yellow and blue make green. So there's a little picture here. This is probably more of what it's supposed to look like, in my mind. It's supposed to look a little bit more like you have a person. That person is you, if I was doing this video. Then you have this other person, other than you. Those two become, as the scriptures speak to, one, where you have you and the other 
and you have a new thing that happens that we can't describe, just like we can't describe the kenosis, just like we can't describe 100% God, 100% man. What you have, and this is why it's important that it's yellow plus blue equals green, is because the only way, and I'm not really good with my color wheel, but I think the only way that you get green is when you combine the two. So you still remain 100% who you are, and the other person remains who they are in identity, and yet the two of you become something completely unique and different than any other relationship in the entire world. Because the two of you have become one. And something beautiful happens where you begin um, to, in some ways, join life in such a beautiful way that you're, as the expression goes, your roots become so intertwined that what you thought was once two has become one. Yesterday, in the wedding, I shared this exact phrase. Marriage is a unique human relationship because it is within the promises of marriage that two people commit to creating a mutually shared identity and growing into that new identity together. Okay, so in the context of marriage, this is what it means. That individual identities are now bound to each other to the point that to think of yourself is to automatically think of your partner. That there really shouldn't be a time that I think of myself ever independent of thinking of my wife. Because the two of us have been one for over 19 years now, right? So there shouldn't be a time that I'm ever thinking of my life really independent of her. Another way to say it is that you could argue that friends and family should no longer relate to you if you're married just as an individual. But they should always relate to you as a couple, even if the other isn't present. And you'll notice that in some relationships. You'll notice that when you go to someone and you have a conversation, they will say, yeah, I really like that idea. Let me talk to, right? They're not making the decision alone. They're including their other half. We use all these different expressions, right? Other half, the other part of me. Whenever I talk about my wife, I say my better three quarters, right? Because she (laughs) makes up for a lot of additional stuff that I need, right? And so, really, this, this is the picture. So yesterday, Spencer and Allison are the illustration. They chose to lose their individual life and find each other together in a mutual life. So let me, let me make sure you're not hearing me incorrectly. I'm not saying that they've stopped being individuals. I'm not saying that they've lost their identity. Not in any sense of the imagination. What I am saying is that they have instead created a new identity together, an identity that's defined and shaped by mutual self-love, giving love, trust, faithfulness, commitment, fidelity, etc., 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 right? So yellow and blue begin to make green. Now here's why I think this is important. I think this actually happens one other time in our life. So you have God here, and you have us here. This is the other time that I think this exact same thing happens. The way we often describe our relationship with God might mirror what you've just seen. We have God, we have us, then we have this thing called our relationship. And when we talk about our relationship with God, we often talk about the things we do in between these two separate entities, right? We talk about what we could do to make this a little bit closer. You hear that, right? I want to try to figure out how to be closer to God. Or we talk about ways in which we can like close the gap between us and God. We even use language like, um, I feel very distant from God, right? We use language like, my prayers feel like they hit the ceiling and they go no further, like assuming that God's above the ceiling, I assume, right? Um, we, we use all that kind of language that describes distance. And again, I think we like this language because guess what? 
if there's ever a point where he disappoints me, because have you noticed it's usually not the other way around, right? Anytime he disappoints me, then I can say that this part really, you know, does he even really exist? I don't know. Is he even really worth my time? I'm not sure. But it doesn't matter because I'm still 100% me. Right? And that's how we kind of define it. At least that's the way our language defines it. But I wonder if that's the way Scripture defines it. And I would argue that Scripture defines it like this. And you notice which one I wrote on top. Right? Two become one. There's a unity. There's this identity that you had apart from God. Then there's God. And now there's this identity you have in God. Right? So, for example, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. John 17. I do not ask for these only. He's asking for his followers, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, God, and me, Jesus, and I, and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, Christ and us, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them as you loved me. John 14, Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Ephesians 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named and according to the riches of His glory that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and established in love will have the power to grasp, the text goes on to say, how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ and to be overwhelmed with that love, right? That his life becomes your life. That my life becomes his life. That he lives through me. That he empowers you. That his spirit is at work in us and through us. That it's a picture, really, of two becoming one. It's a picture of yellow and blue making green. And so why is this important and why have we talked about it this morning? Because the text says this that we started with. It talks about this idea of emptying ourselves. If Christ is the one who emptied Himself, He then asks us to do the same. This whole series that we go through, we're going to look at who is Jesus, what did He do, and what does that require of us? And so what does this have to do with me emptying myself? Here's what the text says, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The the point is to mimic Jesus, right? To have what he did in the incarnation in some way become something that we also aspire to. In the sense that he emptied himself, he humbled himself, And it's a call for us to empty ourselves or in some way to create space for God. Now all these illustrations I've been giving you are pointing to the same thing, right? That God and man are one in a unique God-man way. That husband and wife, two, become one. That God and us become one. But here's the key to all of it. All of them are choices. God had to make the choice to say, yes, I will decide to have Jesus take on flesh and for 100% God, 100% man, 
being to walk on this earth. He had to make that decision. It was a choice. When we make a choice to commit our lives to another person, to a husband and wife, what we are committing to is a lifelong partnership where two become one. A new mutual identity that takes 100% of who that person is and 100% of the other person and unites it in a way that makes it its own unique mutual relationship of love and forgiveness and hope and all of those things at the same time. And it is also a choice, I believe, when we walk into this relationship with God where we say, yes, I will submit my knee to the Master. Yes, I will bow my life to the King of all kings and I will submit to His authority in such a way that the two of us become one with Him having the overriding control. That's the decision we make. Right? And so it's a choice. It's a choice on what path we want to take. It's a choice on whether we want our life to become that because we can choose this option too, the the kind of the blended one. We can choose that. And I would argue that many of us probably do choose that. That's the more consistent, probably, approach for Christianity in the United States, or at least in Western culture, is to choose kind of the in-between. But to give all of myself? No, maybe not. To like set aside all of what I am, my hopes, my dreams, like to say that there's someone else that has authority over all those things, that's a pretty big step. But I think that's what the Scriptures are calling us to. And so here's the, here's the question. What does it mean then for us to empty ourselves? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that it means this. Just like Christ, He humbled Himself or He emptied Himself. It requires us to humble ourselves. So what I want you to do, I just want you to take a minute. You don't have to talk to anybody. Don't, I just want you to think about this. Write down some ideas. And then I'm going to put some on the screen. I want you to silently consider for a moment the opposite of humility. The opposite of humility is pride. And there are symptoms of pride among all of us, right? And so what are those symptoms in your life? I want you to think about it for a minute. Because those are the things that God is asking us to empty ourselves of. Are those symptoms of pride? I'm going to give you a minute to think about it, and then I'm going to put a few on the screen that we can maybe add to our list. All right? So just take a minute in in silence to think through what are those symptoms of pride, perhaps, in our lives. All right, let me add to that list a little bit. What I did is just wrote down what I maybe considered are a few symptoms or characterizations of pride. So pride would be having an independent or self-sufficient spirit. If you ever find yourself saying, I can do it on my own, I don't need anyone else, and especially God, that might be pride. If you find yourself complaining and murmuring a lot, being discontent with things the way they are, If you crave recognition and notoriety, wanting to get other people's attention and affection, if you are in some way self-conscious or you're insecure about uh, what other people think, then you're more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. Maybe you're quick to blame others and have an instinct to cover up sin. You want to hide from what it is you're doing. You're unapproachable or defensive when criticized. 
you react and have difficulty accepting criticism. That might be another symptom of pride. If you have a hard time admitting you're wrong or asking for forgiveness, uh, it always has to be someone else's fault. It certainly couldn't have been my fault. Uh, I certainly wasn't the one that did it. Or you find a way to blame it on someone else. Uh, Or if at times you find yourself angry with God. Next slide. Not think that you're proud. Yeah, actually might be proud. Um, If you consider yourselves more important than others, if you're unwilling to accept who God made you to be, if you hide behind humor to mask, if you react and dislike when God disciplines you, uh, either directly or through others, or if you fear failing. These are just some of what I wrote down are maybe possible symptoms of pride, things that if you look at them, you could say this is pride rearing its ugly head. Now, the question you might be asking yourself right now, and it's one that I certainly asked as I created this list, is what does this mean for us? Because I find myself on that list uh, quite a bit. Maybe you only find yourself on there once or twice, but uh, I think there are many uh, on there for me. And so the question that is like, what do you do with that? And there's a couple reactions. First reaction could be you just going, man, I suck. This, this is horrible, and I'm kind of depressed, and what a way to end the service. Thanks, Russ. I appreciate it. And then just leave, right? That's one option. The second option is, uh, okay, and this is where I think a lot of us land. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle this list. I'm going to start to, like, get after it. Uh, maybe I'll start with, like, I'm not going to complain or murmur, and I'm going to, tr- like, try to not do that, and maybe people can keep me accountable to it. And, or maybe I'm going to say, okay, when someone gives me a compliment, I'll try to deflect it back to them and, and encourage them at the same time and not try to draw attention to myself. Or uh, who, Whatever you saw on your list, you might go, oh, if I can just start, like, chipping away at that, and then I'm becoming more of who I need to be. I can be emptying myself of humility. But instead, I want to suggest maybe a third way. I want to suggest that this is really an invitation to allow God to assume his rightful place in our relationship. It's an invitation for us to say, yeah, guess what? I can't do it. Yeah, guess what? If left to my own devices, I will be proud. Because it's who, in some ways, I am. And I don't want to be. And I want to empty myself. And the way to empty myself is to actually allow God to consume more of me. To allow him to take over more control. To allow him to be the one, as we described earlier, that lives through me. Right? So it's an invitation not to just have Jesus be a part of our life. Not just to have one little bit of that relationship right here at the top where I can go, yep, that's, that's me. But to say, no, I, this is what I want. All of him in all of me. That I actually naturally become more humble when he is working through me. Passage in Colossians says it this way. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Right? And the mystery is this. Christ in us the hope of glory. Christ in us. We're not left to it on our own. If we have joined in a relationship with Him, it is Him through us. It is His power through us. And we become more the type of people that God has called us to be simply by allowing Him to be who He is in us. Yellow and blue do make green. This morning will transition to a time of communion. And as you partake, my encouragement to you would be to, we're going to have two songs, so I'm just going to let you know exactly how many we're going to have. But I, I would maybe even suggest taking part of the first song to just say, God, here's where I feel like I'm at with you. And it might, it might be saying, hey, I feel like I'm in at some kind of relationship like this with you, or I feel like I'm actually seeking to have a different type of relationship with you, one where you are uh, in me in a way that you dominate my life. And, uh, and then just let them know where you're at. If there's feelings of, of pride or pushing that away, just 
fight that off and ask God to uh, grant you peace in that. And then as you come to the table, just be reminded that his body broken and his blood shed are the only means for us to have that relationship with God, one in which we thrive with him. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your uh, grace in our lives. We believe with all of our hearts and minds uh, that you have called us and invited us into a relationship where you consume all of who we are and yet make us more fully us than we've ever been. It's this uh, mystery that we can't really explain that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, and the reason we have hope and the reason we believe and the reason we see uh, miracles happen and things, uh, lives change is really because of what you're doing through us and in us. And so God, I ask that you would uh, continue to invite us into that, that you would uh, challenge us this morning to uh, reorient our mind around what true relationship looks like, whether it's in marriage or whether it's with you. And that we would understand, uh, just in a small little way, uh, what you gave up uh, to come and to be a living sacrifice. And you invite us to be the same. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
desiring to be one with you. I pray for us, new community, that we would live into all the fullness of being one with God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And may this week you see your life and his life united in a way like never before. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And tomorrow, don't forget, 10 a.m. downtown if you want to walk with us for MLK Day. Thanks. Have a great day.